When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. (laughs) People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Go behind the wheel, under the hood, and beyond with Car Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hi, and welcome to Car Stuff. I'm Scott Benjamin. And I'm Ben Bullen. And today we've got a topic that has been a long time in the making. Hey, I just got that. In many, many ways, right? Yes, sir. We are talking about a very interesting period in U.S. automotive history, right? Yeah, that's right. The Oh, go you ahead. Did. No, you no, no, I want you to say it, Ben. Okay. Nowadays, we call it the Brass Era. Yeah, but what do we call it during the Brass Era? We called them horseless carriages. They yeah. weren't even cars yet. <laughs> yeah, because that's some, a little side conversation that we're going to have in just a moment. But, you know, it's funny because, you know, we, we call this the brass era, the brass car era, I guess, mm-hmm. looking back at it. Right. But prior to that or during that, you didn't call it the brass era car. You just called it, you know, these are the horseless carriages that we're seeing all over town. Right. And this this era uh, extends from about what is now called the veteran era. Which you know what that was. So that's that's the early, 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 early days. Like these are cars that people would make in you know the one car garage. You know, like mm-hmm. hammering hammering them on a, a forge or in a uh, on an anvil. You know, to make the the metal body pieces and stuff. You know, really early cars. Yeah. So consider like veteran. The veteran era is sort of the origin story of cars, right? Yeah. And then the brass era, which goes till about World War One, is the um, the second step, and this is where People, just the regular, you know, Jane and John Smith or whatever, start to be aware of these amazing vehicles. Yeah, and you know what? I I say the veteran era is like that early, early day, you know, like where people like, you know, Henry Ford were tinkering around with the quadricycle. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the, the, the Benz was messing around with, you know, his contraption over in uh, over in Germany. And, you know, there's all kinds of different people that are making the same type of thing Everywhere. I don't know how the, what do we call that? There's a term for that, and I don't know if I can come up with it right when now. When people are inventing something kind of concurrently? Simultaneously, they're coming up with the same yeah. idea, but they're not in any way connected. Right, yeah. This is, this is a, a thing that happens frequently with inventions. And what's, a, what's amazing about this era, which I guess goes for about, around 15 years, a little Fif- less than 20? 15's a, a good ballpark. Okay. Uh, so 15 years, uh, during what we call the brass era today, there is a proliferation of all sorts of designs that now we would call experimental. Although I don't know if that's fair because weren't all the designs sort of default I th- experimental? I think all of them were. Even, I mean, even the, the makes and models that we have now, or mm. rather the makes that we have now, um, I, those were even experimental because no one knew if they were going to last, as we saw with Henry Ford and his failed companies. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, over and over again, they tried and tried and tried until they got the right, uh, the right mixture. And, some of them stuck around, but Ben, there were something like there were over a thousand auto manufacturers during this time period in the United States alone. Mm-hmm. This isn't counting Europe because there were a lot of French, a lot of German, sure. just uh, there were a lot British. of British, a lot of British. There were, I mean, I don't want to leave anybody out, but there were a lot of auto manufacturers that were working at the time. That, you know, maybe they only built 10 cars total. Some mm-hmm. of them built, you know, a couple hundred cars total and then they went out of business. So I've got, uh, some numbers of, uh, the, the attrition, I guess, you know, the yeah. way they kind of dropped off, um, 
kind of like on a, a very steep slope yes. as we approach the 1940s. But we'll talk about that in a minute. I want, what I do want to hit on here now is that we're calling, we keep calling this the brass car era. And we'll talk about brass cars, I promise. We'll get to it. But it's, it wasn't called, and we said it a couple of times, it wasn't called the brass car era during the brass car era. It was just called the horse's carriage. You know, they were just called the horse's carriages. They didn't really call it any kind of era. Not like we're living through this. Oh, yeah. And you schooled me on this one because this is something that happens all of the time in human civilization. We don't know what to call something until after it's occurred, right? Yeah, and what do they call that? Um, well, I only know this because you told me it's called a retronym. A retronym, yeah, that's a. It was a term that I had to look up as well. I, you know, really didn't know a whole lot about it before, but it makes sense because I, I thought about this in the past and I didn't know what to call it. A retronym is a way to n- provide a name for something that's that's already happened, something that's in mm-hmm. the past now. Mm-hmm. So, like we're, you know, we're living through. I think we we've talked about this. They call it the modern car era, right? I don't yeah. know how they can call it that right now because it seems like it would have to you would have to be on to the next thing before they would call it the modern car era. But mm-hmm. it's kind of a bold way to, uh, to to name something, right? And also, uh, it's it's a, a weird logic thing because, of course, it's very difficult to name an age or a period of time while you're living in it. You have no perspective, and you can get in something sticky that happened with literature, for instance. Uh, one of the retronyms for one period in literature was the modern period. Boy, we're painting ourselves into a corner with that one. Cause, sure. Because now everything's postmodern. It's going to be futuristic. <laughs> no, so, so here's just a few retronym examples that I thought of or that, you know, are, are pop, you know, popular common, I guess. That just kind of illustrate use. the concept. And this will just show you how, you know, you name an older version of something, but when you're living it, when you're right in that era, you're not really calling it that. So, like, think of it this way. We often say things like that's an analog clock, right? Yeah. Now, when, Prior to digital clocks, it was just a clock. It never was an analog clock. You know, it was always, it was always just a clock. And same thing with watches. You know, it was an analog watch or it was a digital watch. But, you know, they didn't come about until digital watches or digital clocks. So, um, there's also the conventional oven. I mean, it was just the oven prior to the microwave oven. Because mm-hmm. you never said, do you put that in the microwave or the conventional oven? It was always just, you put that in the oven. You don't say conventional oven. Right, yeah. So, I mean, if you want to, um, an automotive example, think about manual transmissions. Um, it was just, <laughs> that's a, good know, one. That's was, a really good it one. It was just the transmission, you know, because everyone was a manual transmission prior mm-hmm. to the advent of the automatic transmission. And, you know, another one is uh, full-size vans. You didn't say a full-size van until there were minivans, right? Mm-hmm. So that's that's another automotive one. I, I'm sure there's something here with big block, small block, but I'm not sure which is uh, which is the first one, I suppose, because there were probably a few different right stories yeah. to this. And I know they made huge engines in the past, but um, black and white television. It was just television until color television came around. Uh, manual typewriters. It was just typewriter until electric typewriters came around. You know, yeah. so uh, regular coffee. There was, you know, that that wasn't. Regular coffee until decaf was there. Um, okay, yeah, I'm just gonna. I'm going to recuse myself because you know how I feel about decaf. <laughs> That's you're out of this one. Huh? I feel that it is disingenuous. <laughs> <laughs> so. All right, so I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna push yeah. that any farther. But this retronym thing for naming the brass era cars. Um, it, it's it's a function that had to happen. I mean, we had to, to call it something. And likewise with the car that or the uh, the era that preceded it, they didn't call it the the vintage car or the veteran. I'm sorry, car. The, the veteran car era. Mm-hmm. And then after the the brass car era came the vintage cars. So likewise, you didn't name that until we got into the period that was after that. So uh, it's it's just one of those tricky things you have to understand as we as we talk about brass era cars. And here we are now uh, with brass era cars. They're they're called brass era cars because, wait for it, they use a lot of brass in the construction of these vehicles. Now, Scott, as you already said, there was this huge outpouring of new companies with new designs, new makes of vehicles that have some of which have never been tried before, and mm-hmm. a few of which have never been tried since, which I think is fascinating. But uh, the big question. That comes up when when we say brass era cars is why use brass? Well, brass has got a lot of really good properties, and you know that's just to say really good, and that's a kind of a broad stroke, I guess, to, sure. to, to say why. But there's so many different things about brass that that were desirable at the time. Now mm-hmm. we we've talked about this off air. We we 
kind of discussed this back and forth. We were trying to find a reason exactly why they use brass and not another metal. And our best guesses are that it was probably easy to work with. I mean, yeah. it's easy to form, easy to shape. It's kind of a Ductile. soft. It can be a soft metal, right? Yeah. Um, there's probably a good supply of it. I mean, which is always required, right? So, sure. And it was relatively easy to produce. I mean, Ooh. I'm not exactly sure how easy. I mean, producing brass isn't like, you know, just mixing together some recipe in your on your your stove or something like that it's uh, you got to work at this you got to know what you're doing and be able to mix the the appropriate amounts of the the um the minerals together that we're going to talk about oh yeah 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 or the elements rather together that we're talking Ooh. about there are also several different grades or types of brass yeah which, there, there are many actually yeah, lots of them and i think the idea behind this is that you could use different types of brass for different purposes in the car boom nail on the head brass had this going for it it's versatile. It's uh, it's an alloy that you can use to decorate stuff. You know, the poor man's gold, mm-hmm. um, as opposed to the fool's gold, pyrite or whatever it is. Yeah, I think it's pyrite. And then it also has uh, the ability to work where low friction is required. Mm-hmm. Yep. So yeah, I mean, there's there's dozens of types of brass. I mean, there's mm-hmm. there's literally dozens that you could use and. I mean, there's all kinds like there's, uh, there's naval brass and there's cartridge brass and there's, there's leaded brass and white brass and yellow brass and mm-hmm. just all these different types and they have different mixtures because brass is a, is a, an alloy which is made up of copper and zinc. So, right. you know, these mixtures, you can play around with the amount of those materials in this thing and, and add things like lead if you wanted mm-hmm. to have different properties and all of them have different uses and they're all, uh, useful in some way. Uh, you know, for certain specific things. Right. And also, uh, if you think about it, when you're building a horseless carriage at the time, it's a heck of an investment to try to make um, a heavy metal car. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, of course, they do have to use iron and other types of metals. But if you can get in where you fit in with uh, an alloy like brass, then you have... Uh, you don't have as much risk or as much sunk cost, and honestly. Not only that, Ben. I mean, all the stuff that we just talked about, but also it was decorative. I mean, and that's that's the other thing is that it looked good at the same time. So that's a huge thing. It, it had a bit of bling. It really did. And you know, when you look at the old cars, I mean, look at like the Stanley Steamer cars, and look at those giant cars of the of the past, those huge coach type cars. They are enormous, and they've got these great big lanterns on them that are made mm-hmm. of brass, and they're, um, you know, the the radiators made of them, and they've got a lot of decorative hardware. Yes, you know, a lot of tie downs, a lot of clasps, a lot of latches, uh, zippers, things like that. And you know, we still use brass as decorative, you know, material today. I mean, sure, yeah, you find it in candles, uh, yeah. gas lamps, a lot of nautical uses. I mean, it's yeah. still still used on on boats a lot. Um, musical instruments, mm-hmm. I think you mentioned horns and bells, things like that. Doorknobs, hardware for cabinets, ammunition. Yeah, ammunition is another one. Zippers, which I mean, that's something I hadn't really thought of that, but zippers are, are brass often. Um, fittings and tools and things like that. You know, the oh, fittings and tools that you would use around explosive gases. I didn't know this because I guess it's it's tougher, if not impossible, to make brass spark. So when you're uh, you know you're rubbing metal against metal. I mean, I think we've all done this where, you know, drug a shovel across pavement or hit a oh, rock yeah, and the or sparks. something like that and sparks fly at steel, you know, or whatever it happens to be made of. Um, it doesn't spark like that. So if you had, uh, you know, brass fittings in an area where you're working with explosive gases, um, mm-hmm. it's not going to spark uh, when it's struck like like some of the other metals would. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I, I don't know. By the, well, by the way, I'm glad that zippers don't spark. Yeah, we lucked out on that one, didn't yeah, we? That was pretty good. I mean, if you're making uh, steel zippers and you know you're sparking, uh, never mind. That's a <laughs> that's a completely different conversation. We're a family show. Like low friction uses, like locks and gears and bearings and valves and plumbing yeah. and hardware and all these fittings that you know these brass era cars have because they were loaded with fittings that were all brass and you know beautiful. Yes, very very intricate designs and everything like that, but also. Very malleable, very soft, and they often uh, would cor- they get corrosion. Yeah, and uh, you know upkeep on these type of cars is is really intense. Yes, and we're going to explore just how intense it becomes in in a little bit. But uh, before we do, I just wanted to uh, give a shout out, Scott, to a place I found. I don't know if you looked into these folks, but there's a place called the Horseless Carriage Club of America. Mm-hmm. Uh, their website is hcca.org um 
this organization is fantastic, man. They have assembled an automotive research library of the Horseless Carriage Foundation. So you can go, uh, this came back from 1985, um, and it was the combination of two uh, pretty extensive libraries of early automotive history. You can go online with this, and you can search through this early stuff, like, like even to the point of seeing digital versions of um, car owner manuals. Very nice. So, And that's the stuff that a lot of people never get to see. Right, yeah, like we get excited when we find stuff like that. Well, even the even the car owners themselves, the people that own that car, they may have a hard time locating any of the printed material because it's mm-hmm. just long gone. It's gone to history, you know. Yeah, and stuff is uh, dried up or been you know water damaged or whatever. Right, and um, I guess before we before we go on to talk about how difficult it can be to maintain these cars and. Uh, and, and explore some more about brass era cars. I do want to tell you that the concept of these just spectacular vehicles, like you've seen the pictures, these things are amazing, they, right? They really are very ornate, beautiful mm. cars. And when I was thinking about beautiful cars, I couldn't help but think of one of my favorite movies I've seen on Netflix recently. And what's that? It's Skyfall. Skyfall. Oh, yes. I've seen Skyfall. Yes. the uh, I think the newest James Bond film, right? That's right. Uh, Skyfall follows the international spy and action hero James Bond as he, uh, as he attempts to tackle another worldwide danger to the globe and the crown. I'm, I'm trying to be vague because I don't want to spoil it. But what I can do, what I can say is that... Scott, these cars in this film are amazing. I don't know how the James Bond franchise gets better and better with cars each time. That's because they keep improving the Aston Martin. Oh, man. It's a, such an amazing car. And you're right. The, the the Aston Martins in that movie, I think it's the Vanquish version, right? Yes. I believe. Yeah, I think you're right. Amazing. I mean, just outright amazing. They're they're fantastic to watch, and there's some great chase scenes. Of course, they're going to use them to potential and beyond, mm-hmm. uh, as we find out, right? Yeah, uh, they, yeah. Uh, they, had, they must have had a big budget on this film. We'll just say that, right? Yeah. Yes. And uh, one thing that we can say is, of course, Aston Martin uh, is not the only car company featured in this film. There's a really funny part that you and I were talking about in the very beginning. Uh, you know, it starts right in the heart of the action. So there's this car chase and. Um, we were speculating whether Mini Cooper had paid for some sort of product placement. I don't know if they did. It was kind of an unusual product placement. Let's just put it that way. Yeah, um, but check it out because they are involved in in a very strange way in the opening uh, action scene or car chase. Um, I don't want to say too much without spoilers. No, we shouldn't do that. Yeah. Let's just just move on because there there are going to be some fantastic cars in this movie, and, uh, and it's worth seeing it just for the Aston Martins alone. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to talk about and go through all the things that are sometimes difficult to process alone. We're going to go over how to regulate your emotions, diving deep into holistic personal development, and just building your mindset to have a happier, healthier life. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? And basically have conversations that can help us get through this crazy thing we call life. I already believe in myself. I already see myself. And so when people give me an opportunity, I'm just like, oh, great, you see me too. We'll laugh together. We'll cry together and find a way through all of our emotions. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic Gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? 
This is Stephen A. Smith. When I'm not at my day job, first tape, you can find me in my studio hosting the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and politics. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions on those nauseating cowboy fans, the chaos in Washington, D.C., and trending topics on social media, as well as my straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. And I occasionally give out love advice. Yes, it's true. If you want to know my true feelings about something, I'll give it to you straight. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. It's all about awesome cars. In fact, I want to tell you about these awesome cars that are from the brass car era, which we kind of left off with. But I, I want to say this, and I, I think we need to kind of step through the brass car era history okay, um, yeah. shortly. I mean, we've mentioned that it's a 15-year time period, right? Sure. Roughly. Yeah, yeah 15-ish. Ending, ending I, I guess, ballpark right around the beginning of World War One. I. I think that's when most people say that the brass car era ended. Yes. And then... Um, and then we, we picked up with the vintage car area after that. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that, that is kind of looked over often is that um, cars weren't standardized until right about this time. So this is when cars really began to look like cars. You know, right. Prior yeah. to this, they were look they look like uh, the buggies that would be pulled behind a horse in a horse. Yeah, you'd see all all sorts of stuff that looks weird today, like someone steering with a rudder rather than with a wheel. Or seats being positioned back to back. In fact, you know, I, one thing that, I mean, this is already stepping away from this, but, um, one thing that I want to mention here is that if you can picture these cars that they call like the high wheel motor buggy design, and I think everybody can picture what this is like, and think about the, the first Ford, that, that quadricycle design. Mm-hmm. He's got those really tiny, tiny little wheels, you know, they're, they're very high, uh, very tall wheels, I guess. Um, the high wheel motor buggy design was ended by the Model T when it when it was introduced in about 1908. So you know through 1908, cars were looking a, still looking a lot like uh, the, the buggies that were pulled behind car behind horses rather. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until uh, a company, a French manufacturing company, Panhard. Yeah, uh, Panhard et Lavassol. I'm glad you took that. Ben. I'm just going to call glad it. Glad I mangled it. I'm just going to call it Panhard. Um, they actually standardized what we consider the automobile or the modern automobile, mm-hmm. and they specified that the standardized automobile would have things like a front engine, yeah. rear wheel drive, internal combustion engine, uh, sliding gear transmission. You know, some of the important things that we really think of as as a, looking like a car. Yeah, we think of that as staple ingredients of a car right now, but it's it's strange to consider that they really weren't considered that for some time. Exactly. And so the traditional coach vehicles, or like the uh, the buckboard runabouts, um, kind of lost favor with the public. And then these touring bodies, which is kind of like what the Panhard design was, these touring bodies became popular because they were a little less expensive. They weren't quite as uh, as complex to make as mm-hmm. the uh, as the original buggy designs were. So, you know, we're in the early, early 1900s, and about 1906, I think, is when steam cars were at their most popular. Yes. And they were the fastest cars on the road. Which is crazy, but true. Yeah, I mean, we look at some of the uh, the records from back then, mm-hmm. and steam cars were setting records on Daytona Beach, you know, in in the early 1900s, and some excessive speeds. I mean, you think about they're doing this on sand, you know, hard packed sand, but right, uh, the speeds that they reached on Daytona Beach for these world speed record attempts, absolutely incredible. And then to pair that with they were doing it with steam power. Even more impressive. Yeah, phenomenal. Yeah, so you know there were a lot of these, a lot of advancements right around this time as well. That you know, I, I just want to briefly mention them. We're not going to go in depth into any of these, but okay. some of the technical advances that came about during during the brass car era, and this is why it's really important. Uh, there's about seven of them that I want to mention. Um, electric ignition was one. The, the, before that, they did not have an electric ignition system. They also had independent suspension, which is something that they didn't have prior to uh, prior to this. I think before that, the suspensions were things like, um, you know, pieces of leather strap that were suspending the bodywork in between the wheels on the chassis. So, yeah. you know, that kind of crude chassis was what was going on. So, independent suspension was brand new and is developed in something like, I mean, as early as 1873, but it wasn't really coming about until the brass car era. That was when pretty much standardized everything. Mm-hmm. Four wheel brakes, which nothing had until the brass car era. Leaf springs were starting to be widely used for suspension. 
There was also angle steel, which was taking over for what they called armored wood in body design, you know, for frame materials. Which and is like just that. what it sounds like. Exactly. So, you know, steel body. Um, transmissions and throttle controls were finally being adopted because, you know, the, prior to that, there were all these different controls that, uh, you know, maybe even belts that would slip and, you know, all mm-hmm. kinds of different operating devices. Uh, safety glass is the last one I want to mention. That was patented by a guy named John Wood in England in 1905. So uh, there's a lot of these different things. And all these changes, and one, one side benefit to all this, Ben, mm-hmm. is that, you know, I mentioned they were starting to use steel bodies. And... That came about in, like, the, I'd say about 1912. Uh, there was a company called Hup in the United States, and then there was also BSA in the United Kingdom. And uh, I think it was the Dodge brothers who were building Model T bodies at the time, which is so unusual, right. in 1914 um, here in the United States. They were all starting to use these steel body designs that we've talked about a few times uh, you know, for different reasons. But the change, the change from wood body to steel bodies meant that the wood would now become available to some of the high-end furniture makers that they didn't have it access to in the, in the past. So, you know, they were, they were getting kind of the bottom of the barrel for furniture building. Right. And all the good wood was going to the auto manufacturers and they were using those to build, uh, you know, the auto bodies mm-hmm. and the chassis or whatever they used it for at the time. And they were kind of get, like I said, the, the furniture was lacking because of the car design. But now, you know, the, Early 1900s, 1912, 1914, somewhere around there, it shifted over and that furniture manufacturing was now getting the good wood. And what's interesting, too, about this, uh, let's see, our number is 1912, our date there? Uh, uh, yeah, we're somewhere in there. Yeah, right before World War II, right? Or World War One, excuse me. World War One. that's and, right. And the, the issue here uh, that, that's going to be interesting for any history buff is to look at how the outbreak of World War One affected automotive design. This is, we have podcasts about this, and you can check them out if you haven't listened to them yet. But uh, I just want to note that it's a fascinating story because, as we know, wars are always very hungry for resources. Mm-hmm. So no spoilers, but check out our episodes on how wars affect manufacturing. Exactly, and it's kind of peppered throughout many of our episodes yeah. as well. So you know, if you want to talk about a few examples of brass air cars just, just briefly, yes, I was surprised to learn, and I didn't think of it this way, but the early Model Ts were brass air cars. Now, they made them all the way through 1927, but but the early Model Ts, like I guess you could like call the it the first generation. Yeah, you you said the first generation, and I, I I can see what you're saying. But really, you know, Henry Ford didn't change anything throughout that whole time period. I mean, not a whole lot. Right. A few things here and there, but the first first cars to come off the line were brass era cars, which is fascinating. Is it? I wanted to ask you this because we talked about this off air, Scott. Is it something? Um, is it a matter of him doing that? Because it was the easiest material to work with or because it was established? I think it was just established that that's what you do. That's how you make these things. And they were, they were doing it well. You know, everybody, everybody had kind of a formula for what worked. And of course okay. he's, he's into making cars fast and, and, uh, affordable. Assembly so style. Exactly. Yeah. So he's doing what he can in order to keep up with the competition and do it as quickly as he can. So, you know, there's also like the 1909 Morgan runabout, which was, I think it was a cycle car, which is kind of strange. Mm-hmm. Uh, 1910 Mercer runabout, a raceabout. Um, even the 1910 Bugatti, the Type 13, uh, that was a racing and touring model. That was a, that was a brass era car. I'm just giving you some examples. There's, there's literally thousands of them that were built because right. we mentioned the, the companies that built, you know, 10 cars, 12 cars, you know, mm-hmm. three or four cars, and then went out of business. But um, any Rolls-Royce cars or, or Mercedes-Benz cars of that era, perfect examples of, of brass era cars. They're, they're so ornate and complex in the way that they they are designed. It almost, well, I'm going to say complex in that, you know, they look complex when you look at them because they have so many different latches and buckles and, and decorative hardware, and it's brass and those giant lantern front end Yeah, lamps. and they're intricate. I think the... the it's it's a very sophisticated design. It it is very sophisticated. I mean, and Rolls Royce was right there with the silver ghost design. So you can picture you can picture what I'm talking about. The Marmon cars, mm-hmm. um, all these cars from that era are even so, some uh, early Packards. I think. Yeah, I think you're right. They're 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 just so. I say I keep saying intricate and and 
they're beautiful. I mean, they really are. They're like they're like museum pieces. But you know, then it was just that's what a car looks like. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to talk about and go through all the things that are sometimes difficult to process alone. We're going to go over how to regulate your emotions, diving deep into holistic personal development, and just building your mindset to have a happier, healthier life. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? And basically have conversations that can help us get through this crazy thing we call life. I already believe in myself. I already yeah. see myself. And so when people give me an opportunity, I'm just like, oh great, you see me too. We'll laugh together, we'll cry together and find a way through all of our emotions. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith. When I'm not at my day job, first tape, you can find me in my studio hosting the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, at the very least, as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and politics. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions on those nauseating cowboy fans, the chaos in Washington, D.C., and trending topics on social media, as well as my straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. And I occasionally give out love advice. Yes, it's true. If you want to know my true feelings about something, I'll give it to you straight. So, listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I want to uh, reference a blog from our friends over at Hemmings. Uh, they have some great stuff on brass cars if people want to check out uh, their website on the way to ours, which is carsepsio.com. Shameless blog. They had this great piece I was reading about the Wilson Pilcher. Uh, this one was made in 1904 and it's, it's just, uh, it's a beautiful vehicle. Scott, the blog comes from, uh, some conversations about it being the very last one up for auction. Now, just to show again what a, I don't know if it's fair to say cottage industry, but it's kind of accurate. A lot of these guys were working by themselves in their garages. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Wilson Pilcher was, uh, made from, uh, made by a guy named Walter Wilson maybe an unacknowledged mechanical genius in Britain at the time, or in the UK, rather, England. Oh, man, we're going to get the email. I know. Check out a map, then. Sorry. Uh, and it's the sole survivor of this time, No which which goes back to your earlier point about how difficult the upkeep for these vehicles can be. Because, like, the question in most people's heads, when they hear about brass era cars... Uh, is going to be, okay, why brass? We've sort of answered that. Next question is, okay, if there were so many, then where the heck are they now? Yeah, that's true. And, you know, a lot of them have just simply not stood the test of time. I mean, they've corroded away into nothing. They've been neglected. You know, There and, are no replacement parts, no it, original parts. Exactly. I mean, you've got a car that, you know, maybe only seven of them were made, and, you know, they all ended up, you know, in someone's backyard somewhere just kind of sinking into the ground or they ended up in a uh, junkyard somewhere or or scrapped for metal for the war efforts right and you know a lot of the, in fact a lot of them suffered that fate i guess and that you know they were they were used up during world war 1 or world war 2 uh, mm-hmm. for for the metals but you know the, the overall point here i guess is that brass era cars are a challenging hobby to have i mean really challenging in that yeah. you know replacement parts are extremely difficult to find they're they're um you know, most of them have to be fabricated or handmade so you can go to places you know that we found online there's i think that um horseless carriage company that you mentioned they've got yeah. a list of of 
makers that will make uh, aftermarket parts, right? Mm-hmm. For and, different makes and models. Yeah, and then uh, they've they've got a huge list of uh, that's the Horseless Carriage Club of America. Check them out if you if you found one, if you were lucky enough to be around one. It is worth your time to refurbish it. It will be challenging, but it's worth your time because you literally may be looking at one of only 18 vehicles. Yeah, something like that. I mean, yeah. it could be that even if even if there were more built, even if yeah. there were, uh, you know, it was what we'll call mass produced now. You know, there were hundreds of them built. Right. How many of those do you think are around today? And and then again, how many of them are restored? And then how many are up for sale that day? Yeah. You know, or that year, that that decade. So you know, they become. Extremely valuable when they're restored. Of course, original condition. If you can find an original survivor car that's in decent shape, driving shape, uh, then wave to the people at the museum you're in. That is even <laughs> that is even more rare because I mean it becomes even more valuable along the way. So yeah. because it's just simply survived that long. So you know a lot of these manufacturers, you know they they the, the spec sheets, you know the build documents are just completely non-existent. They don't even they don't even have them. They never were around really. I mean they just weren't available. So yeah, they have to reverse engineer some of these. Uh, components when they try to make them. Exactly. So confusion happens a lot. And, you know, the people that make these parts and things, they're going to have a lot of questions. There's going to be a lot of back and forth, a lot of photographs, I'm sure, are exchanged. You know, mm-hmm. if you can't bring the vehicle there for fitting, you know, for everything, uh, I think there's going to be some trouble there. But, you know, there's a lot of companies that will work with you and do exactly what you want and reproduce things in brass for you. Yeah, I've got one shout out, for instance, there's a place called Classic Auto Part Reproduction Service, mm-hmm. which, of course, stands for CARS. Uh, that's the acronym, right? Clever. Uh, they're, they're in Northern California and their entire specialty is manufacturing parts and accessories for these antique autos. Okay, makes sense. So let's say you've got a, an early Model T that I mentioned, the, uh, mm-hmm. the brass era Model T. Um, I think those early ones had, uh, brass radiators, they had brass headlights, they had a brass horn, and a lot of other, you know, like small hardware type parts that would fit onto them. And where are you going to go to get that stuff, Ben? I mean, that, maybe the Ford is a, is a different example. Maybe there are parts out there. But, you know, because maybe. stuff was mass produced compared to some of these other makes and models. But, you know, that's a, that's a great, great thing to know. A great resource to have is to be able to go online and look up, you know, 15 or 20 or, or more different places that will, will reproduce parts for you. And uh, this is not really the end of brass era cars. Uh, I've got, I, I don't know, Scott, where do you want to go with this? Well, I'll tell you what. Can I mention just a couple more quick yes. things, and then I think we'll move on, because uh, we'll get towards the end of this wrap-up. But you wanted to mention steampunk. Oh, and, yeah, yeah, and I yeah. I think this is valuable in this, because it's it's we've seen a lot of steampunk design, and even mm. car design. Yes, uh, we have, we have run across steampunk cars a couple of times, right, in mm-hmm. our history making this show. And usually we run into them when we're doing stuff like, I don't know, Scott, like art cars or cars at Burning Man, things like that, fan sure. cars at Dragon Con or something. Yeah, exactly. Um, steampunk is this idea of, it's sort of an alternative history concept where people like to um, imagine a world in which, Technology never moved on from steam. And so you see a lot of, uh, a lot of, uh, let me just be honest, this is fictional. Uh, but you know, you see a lot of people trying to design things that would be, for instance, a steam powered computer or a steam powered airplane. And they always use brass, copper fittings. And when you look at brass era cars, um, you can very easily see that maybe this is one of the real life precursors of what would later become steampunk. Oh, definitely. These, these brass air cars fit right into the steampunk, uh, theme, I guess. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the science fiction, this, uh, what do they call it? Retro futuristic. Yeah, uh, there we go. There's so many different terms to, to, to apply to this, but, you know, if they're very, they're, well, they're, I'm going to say they're overly ornate and yes. a lot of brass and a lot of leather and, and, and even wood in their design mm. and exposed gears and complex sure. workings. And it's, it seems like it's, when I say overly designed or overly complex, I mean that, you know, they look like it's taking something to the extreme. Like there's an easier way to do that, but I'm going to do it kind of the roundabout way because mm. it's, it's a little bit more beautiful to look at. Yeah. It's it, technically speaking, it's more spectacular. It's more of a spectacle. Yeah. That's probably the better way to put it, I think. So, um, anything else on uh, steampunk cars? Because I, I do think it fits right in with what we're talking about. Um, I, mean, I, I think it's an I think it's an interesting note for anybody who is maybe a fan of that kind of aesthetic and uh, just now realize that they would love brass era cars. Mm-hmm. And I think it might also be cool. 
for people who love brass era cars and want to see that that sort of design echoed in different parts of the modern day. Well, fair enough. That's it. Okay, I like that. So oh, okay. that's that's decent wrap up on the steampunk conversation. Now, I would like to uh, to mention just one last thing, and then we'll kind of move on to what we were going to talk about at the very end. Um, oh yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. wait. You do one last thing, and then I'll do one last because I have news. <laughs> I have news. <laughs> okay, so we've got like three last three last, last things. things. How about that? So right. we talked about the attrition rate in some of these uh, early auto manufacturers, oh, right? Yeah. And this this can just take ten seconds here, but you know <laughs> there were something like over a thousand U.S. manufacturers at the time of the brass era car. Uh, I guess boom, you know. When they were actually really being made and produced throughout, you know, up to World War One, and from 1,000, I'll tell you how sharply they dropped off. By 1917, which is kind of right in the middle of World War One, yeah, it had dropped to something like 127 here in the United States. So you know they dropped off sharply right at the beginning of the war, and then by 1947, which is just after World War Two. Um, the number in the United States had dropped down to 12 auto manufacturers. So, and I think 12 is kind of a rough number. I don't know if they even were really can still still completely building cars or not, or just hanging on to the name. I see what you're saying. Um, just so, still technically in business. I guess so. So we're going from like you know ballpark. These are ballpark numbers, but you know a thousand down to less than a dozen or about a dozen wow. in in about 40 years. That's a significant drop in in production numbers, but it just gives you an idea of how many people were out there building these brass era cars. A thousand manufacturers building cars. Yeah, and you can find list of these. You'll see some names you'll recognize from our show, like Stanley Steamer is one mm-hmm. of those that fell in that attrition. Exactly. Now I've got this one last thing that I want to cover, and then you've got one last thing that you want to cover. So who do you want, who do you want to go first? Um, Mine's a question for you. Okay. Well, I'll go first because I I think we should end on the cool question. All right. Um, one neat note. Uh, this, uh, you guys, it might sound brutal to talk about a thousand going down ultimately to around twelve which means probably realistically more like eight or nine. And uh, as brutal as it might sound, this happens all the time in a pioneering industry. Um, my closest comparison that for a non-automotive idea would be soda. When uh, Pepsi and Coca-Cola were out, there were hundreds of other soda companies, and they winnowed down because that's the nature of this kind of experimentation um experimentation and pioneering. Now, that's not my one thing. I snuck that in. That's a decent comparison, though. Thanks, man. Um, there's the uh, there's a move to create a new horseless carriage in Central Park, New York City. Oh, no kidding. Yes, sir. Uh, check out this picture. There's a guy who's an animal lover and a fan of brass era cars. Oh, I like that. And he wants to replace the horse-drawn carriages with... A new horseless carriage, a brass era car reproduction. The guy doing this is named Jason Wenig at the Creative Workshop in Florida. That, that is such a cool design. Yeah, pretty recent too. This story comes to us from uh, April 2013. So he he's thinking that this this vehicle, which you're looking at a picture of it now, that this vehicle, which could fit eight people, might be able to help uh, get rid of. The, the horses, because I think he, he has a problem with the horses pulling the carriages in the city. I see. Okay, so this is an animal rights type thing, an mm-hmm. issue there. It's not that, you know, the horses are polluting the park or anything like that. Right, right yeah, no, I don't think he's like a horse manure warrior. I see. But, uh, but also, he says that it could be really cool for people who visit to feel like they're in the Great Gatsby era of Manhattan. I just recently took a trip to New York, and uh, we did the horseless carriage thing for the first time ever, you know, there. Not, not... And we've done it other little, uh, you know, mm-hmm. um, communities, you know, vacation type places, but never through Central Park. Uh-huh. And um, th- this design, I mean, if they were to offer this versus a a horse drawn carriage, mm-hmm. of course, you know, I would probably go for this. This would be such a cool thing to to ride yeah. through the park in. Um, the the design takes after. I'm just reading here. It says after a 1909. Pierce Arrow, and I think it also uses Packard as a design. Yep, uh, design Q. So that's the type of car you're looking at. But it's so it's really it's a faithful reproduction of a an old design. Yeah, with uh, if it goes through the city, would require some stuff like seat belts. Well, you know? Of course. So it can't be completely 100 percent accurate. But the guy Jason Wenig, uh, and again, I hope I am pronouncing that name correctly, is a car builder, and uh, I thought. That would be interesting to you and I and to our listeners because how cool would it be, man? I think that's uh, that's an interesting idea. And you know what? 
even if they did both things still. I mean, some people are going to still, you know, traditional still want to still do the, uh, the horse. Sure, like take the honeymoon horse ride, but of course it would be like living in a different time. I guess so. Yeah, that's pretty. That's a that's a neat find, Ben. That's a good. uh, That's a good one. I like it. Ties right in exactly with what we're doing today. Yes, uh, but we have one last thing before we close. Yeah, I guess, and we can make this quick because I know we're running kind of late here. But um, I have a question for you, and I I think about this often. I really do. A lot of times on the way home from work or wherever I am, Um, and this this ties right in with today's topic. Do you, have you ever wished that you had been born either earlier or later in, in history? And if, if so, when and then why? Oh, oh, wow. Okay. That's a deep one. Um, all right. Well, full disclosure, you did, you did give me a running start on this because we mentioned it off air and I've been, I've been thinking about it, man, uh, for most of the past few days and uh, you promise, well, you can laugh. You don't have to promise not to laugh. I'm going to say something kind of dumb. Okay. I would want to live in the future. In the future. So you were saying that uh, would you prefer to have not been born right to this point? Like, you, I mean, still it's out there sometime? Or are you saying that, you know, maybe being born five years ago? Oh, okay. Um, I'm, I'm saying roll the dice, man. It'd be cool to be born 200 years from now. Oh, wow. So long, long time in the future. Long, long time. Now, I know that I might be... I might be giving myself the short end of the of the stick because uh you know it's possible that civilization as we know it might not exist but I think it will and I think that there will be some amazing technology out there can you imagine how cool it would be to drive on Mars very cool yeah so that's a, that's where I'm going with a lot it. of possibility I guess I mean but you never know what's going to happen right exactly it is sort of um this sort of the old pig in a poke thing you know uh but I think the risk is worth it, and I completely understand that I might be doing the equivalent of gambling my life away on uh, something will never happen. But just just the possibility of the amazing vehicles that are going to be in the future is enough for me to sign on, but only if it's like hundreds of years. Understood. Okay. So what now, a, now what, mine goes the opposite direction, uh-huh. and I'm going to say because we, of what we know in history already because i mean I've, I've already observed what i what i've you know we've, what we've all seen what we've, we've read about what we've researched for today um and it wasn't just today that that, that brought me about to this i mean I've, I've thought about this for a long long time all right where is scott benjamin in time and space and this is dramatic now this is, yeah. uh, this is fairly dramatic i i think around 1890 if i was born in Ooh. 1890 yeah good call. and the reason the reason 1890 is kind of that sweet spot for me is because right about let's say 1905 you know right around there i'd be 15 years old mm-hmm. this is the dawn of the automobile this is the early early days of of the car the automobile design i mean complete you know this is just coming about they're brand new technology brand new machinery everybody's kind of you know into this at yeah. the time and i think that i would fit right in with this now we talked about this also this all depends on would i have been really so auto focused had i not had the experiences that i had in let's say the 1970s and 1980s mm-hmm. you know going to the indianapolis 500 and going to um all these little dirt tracks that i would go to you know on the in the side country roads and motocross races and all that stuff you know the, all the uh, the automotive experiences i've had in you know in the 1970s 1980s 90s whatever I don't know if that would have been the case back then because I wouldn't have had any of that to build on. Would I have been interested in cars at all or would I just thought, you know, that's crazy, fancy machine that I don't want to be involved with? It's would too- you have thought horse carriages? Yeah. Those are my things. Yeah, the, these, those, those horseless carriages are too fast or whatever, right? I don't know, man. You kind of have cars in your blood. I, I guess, but I mean, is that just be based on, you know, the history that I have? So yeah. I look at it that way, but if, but if I were to take my experiences now and, and move it back in the same interest, mm-hmm. 1890 would be the time because then I would be kind of right in that sweet spot of when everybody's really dabbling in, in automotive uh, design and, and manufacturing. Mm-hmm. And I think I could have fit right in with that. And I, I would have loved to have maybe even, who knows? I mean, it's, again, it's wide open what yeah. you could do. You could either partner up, you know, buddy up with old Henry Ford there. There you go. Or, uh, you know, ransom Eli Olds and, you know, get right in on the ground floor. Or do you start your own business as one of the 1,000 that, you know, probably eventually went out of business? I could see you pulling a, uh, I could see you pulling a Frank Curtis and lying about your age 
to get into a garage. Yeah, that would have been cool. See, and you can't really do that now. You can't really lie about your age and say you're, uh, you know, 18 when you're really 14 years old. It just doesn't happen. There's background checks. There's all kinds of different yeah, things. Yeah, there's all kinds of party poopers. So, okay, that's, I mean, I'd like the listeners to kind of think about that as well. Like, if you could right. pick a time in history or in the future when you'd like to be born and yeah. why, and relate it somehow to the, uh, to the world of the automobile, I guess. Right. Would you like to be there in the 50s? Right. Or would you like to and and you can make it regional, too. Like, would you like to be in France near the dawn of the motorcycle? Yeah. What if you were what if you're born in 1940 and then, you know, in 1957, when the 57 Chevy came out, that was your car that you got as your first car, your your 1957 Chevy. Yeah. How cool would that be? So there's a lot of different ways to look at this. Like, why why would you pick that time and, and for what reason? And I wasn't imaginative enough when we were talking about this because you did point out that I would finally have a decent shot at a Packard. And then I said, I don't know. I, I probably wouldn't. I'd probably still be too poor for one. <laughs> you mentioned something about being an aristocrat. I'd have to be an aristocrat. Yes, I'd have to be a landed aristocrat. <laughs> but, um, you know, 200 years in the future, who knows? We will see, my friend. All we have to do is invent that time machine mm-hmm. that we keep talking about. Yeah, all we need is a DeLorean. That's all we need. But in the meantime, we need to read just a piece of listener mail. All right, let's make it quick. All right, so Scott, John writes in, uh, John from North Stonington, Connecticut. Uh, he is a new subscriber. He has enjoyed several of the shows. Uh, he wants to know if we will do a podcast on the El Camino and Ranchero car pickups. This is the second. Uh, this is the second email we got. I was looking at that. you as if you're reading the same email, but yeah, that's yeah. Uh, that's the second one. So you know what? That's uh, that's just officially moved itself up on the list a little bit. Mm-hmm. And uh, he said that he uh, is also interested in the Falcon pickup still being made down under and the Volvo 240 series. Now, isn't this funny? This is almost exactly the same email that we received from uh, Wayne. Yeah, from Wayne. That's right. So, John, good idea. Again, same ideas coming in. Uh, they get a little bit more weight because people are thinking about them. And we both like that topic. So mm-hmm. I think you're going to see that one in the future. Yes, and in the meanwhile, Scott, you and I are off to uh, venture into some research for upcoming shows. We hope you guys enjoyed our podcast on Brass Era Cars. We'd love to hear what you think. You can find us on Facebook. You can find us on Twitter. You can read a little bit more about this on our website, carstuffshow.com. And if you'd like to send us an email just to say hi or with a topic suggestion, you can drop us a line at carstuff at discovery.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Let us know what you think. Send an email to podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. (laughs) People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals, Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast.